Hi, my name is Yara and I'm the host of Life After Birth. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wajak Noongar people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded. I send my respects and reverence to Wajak Noongar elders, past, present and emerging. On this podcast, we share stories and wisdom about the ups and downs of our mothering experiences, much like the First Nations people of Australia have done so through their storytelling for over 60,000 years. Through their oral traditions, the Wajak Noongar people have supported and celebrated one another and have passed down knowledge, values and lessons, providing a testament of the power and significance of sharing our own stories. In honouring them, we recognise the importance of storytelling in understanding our past, navigating our present and shaping our future. My hope is that this podcast carries this spirit forward in our conversations, acknowledging that while our stories may differ, they all hold value and contribute to our shared human experience. Hey Mama, I'm Yara Heary and this is Life After Birth. This is where you can find honest and vulnerable conversations that lift the veil on how mothers really experience life after birth. Join me as I talk to the experts in the parenting space, but not as you've heard them before. These conversations explore the common humanity in all our lived experiences as mothers, so that you're left feeling seen, heard, validated, and bolstered in your ability to weather your mothering storms. Hey everyone, I was so excited when my guest this week said yes to chatting with me on the podcast. You've probably heard me talk about the fair play method for creating equity when it comes to labor within our homes and families. I talk quite a bit about it on Instagram. And my guest this week is supporting families in doing this in a really big way. My guest is Laura Danger, who you may know from her Instagram page, That Darn Chat, or her podcast, Time to Lean. Laura is a licensed educator, certified fair play facilitator, coach and creator who uses her platform to advocate for quality connections and equal partnerships. We had such a beautiful conversation about her struggle with addiction in her teens, her experience of becoming a mother, navigating the pandemic, the work of letting go of perfect mother ideologies, which is just huge in itself and how this all led her to the fair play method. This was such a beautiful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. Okay, so before we get started in the questions, tell us a bit about what does your family look like right now? Who's in it? Kids, all of that sort of thing. So it's me, and I'm married. My husband and I live in Chicago. And we have two small kids. Actually, tomorrow is my youngest's fourth birthday. Oh, so I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, two two little girls. Okay. All right. Beautiful. Oh, very similar to me. I have a four and a seven-year-old as well. <laughs> so can relate so much there. So the question I ask everyone right from the beginning is, tell me about who is Laura Danger? Where have you come from? You know, where's the beginning of you? Who are you? That's it's such a wonderful question. I'm just so grateful to be here and talk about this. This has been the question on my mind for the last several years because I mean, I know you talk about it all of the time with motherhood, but it has taken me even before that to try to figure out who I was before that. Yeah. So, who am I? Um, 
I like to call myself an educator. I'm an educator. I'm a friend. I like to garden. I like to hike. I like to be outside. One of my favorite things to do in the entire world is have intimate, vulnerable conversations with people. I like to connect. And so that that's who I am. Mm. I'm a connector. I'm an investigator. All of those things. <laughs> yeah. And what has existed in your history to shape that, I guess, like in terms of what's the background for you in terms of your family that you've come from that may have helped to develop that in you? So I come from, how would I describe myself? Let's give you the whole story, the whole story of Laura. So I grew up in the Midwest in the U.S., which is just everybody's so polite here. Lots of lakes and nice seasons and fall colors and all of that. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older brothers. And I was raised because of when my parents are divorced. But because of when they split and how old my brothers were, I call myself the youngest only child. So I have a very interesting relationship with my brothers who also both have kids similar ages. But I grew up spending my summers, if anybody's listening, I'll have to describe it because I don't know your base. Yeah, yeah. But I spent my summers in northern Michigan, which is smack dab in the middle of the United States. And it's, I would say, you know, I'm talking Fahrenheit here, but 65, 70 degrees Fahrenheit at any given day, like, when the sun's out, it's warm. In the shade, it's cold. And we have lots of lakes. And I was pretty much just unsupervised. Mm. So I spent my summers just like by myself trying to figure out how to keep myself busy. And my mom and I would walk through the forest and find sticks and look at owls and just really... Mm, that sounds lovely. It was really lovely. Yeah. It actually reminds me of a conversation that I had with someone the other day where we were talking about what it was like for us growing up as well. And my experience was that like, I kind of just ran around in the streets with the kids from all of the neighborhood and not in a bad way, just like we'd be at the park, we'd go to the school, we'd go to someone's house and just sort of reflecting on how different that is today. Like we just don't have that, you know, and there's good reason, I guess, for that, but it's just a really different kind of experience, you know, growing up. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up in a city and I'm raising my kids in an urban environment. And so that has been really interesting to me. My mom still lives in an area where there's lots of woods. She lives on Lake Michigan, which is a huge lake. And, you know, she still gets to kind of have that experience. And when I go visit her, it's the same. But we would go to this little cabin on this lake in the woods and then we would come home to this small town and we kind of like went back and forth all year, all summer. And so I, as a parent and trying to get back in touch with kind of who I am, discover who I am, I'm always trying to do that dance of like, how much do I give them that space how much rope do I let them have? Do I let them go out and play with the kids in the neighborhood? It's hard because I want them to have that feeling that I had of like adventure yeah. and exploration. But still be safe. Yeah, right. <laughs> but still right. feel safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also one of the things that I think really differs from when 
I was being raised and maybe you as well, is just like the level of information that parents had about what was happening in their neighbourhoods and in the world and Mm -hmm. even in their communities. Like we have so much more information, which means we have so much more anxiety as well. And it's like, you know, some of this information is really important to have, but it does mean that there's more anxiety around the kind of freedom that maybe we are used to in terms of when we were sort of growing up. Yeah. And were you close with your parents growing up? Um, kind of. I would say, I mean, they were definitely parents. They were not, you know, I didn't grow up in a situation where we were buddies or anything like that. As I got older, my parents split up and I moved in with my mom primarily through my teen years. And, oh, here's the good stuff. I just glazed right over this, didn't I? (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I lived with my mom through my teen years and I, I had a really hard time, a very hard time. I dropped out of high school. I used a lot of drugs. I gave my mom a really hard time, really hard time. And we really battled it out. But when I was 17, I ended up both of my parents together. The last time I think they were in the same room, got together and (laughs) sent me to rehab. Mm. So I ended up in rehab at 17. Wow. That's a big journey. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's a really big journey. Yeah. And that has really shaped and impacted the last, I don't know, 15, 16 years. And I'm so grateful that I had that opportunity Mm. to actually get help instead of ending up in jail, which would have absolutely ruined my life. So, yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so then I have another question to follow up on that, which I mean, it sounds like you've told us a little bit. So you got to the age of about 17 and went into rehab. So before being a mother, because the first question that you kind of answered was telling us about who you are today so far, what you know of yourself in terms of being an educator and someone who's curious about the world and that sort of thing. Who were you before you became a mother? So, you know, what was Laura doing in between those ages, maybe of 17 up until when she became a mother? And how do you think you would have described yourself back then? So looking back, who do you think you were during that period of time? Hey mamas, it's Yara here from Life After Birth Psychology. I want to talk to you about something that many mothers carry a lot of shame about, and that's anger. Have you ever found yourself thinking, what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I so angry? Why can't I just stay calm? Well, I want you to know that you're not alone. So many mothers quietly worry about their anger. But did you know that your anger carries messages that can unlock a more regulated and fulfilling experience for you as a mother? To support you in changing your relationship with anger, I have created a self-paced online workshop designed to help you understand your anger and learn to process and express it in more adaptive and healthy ways. Within the workshop, you'll explore the role of your nervous system, the hidden messages in your emotions, and even how your past influences how you respond to challenge and stress today. But the best part, you'll gain practical tools that'll help you gracefully steer through those intense moments, all while deepening the heartfelt connections you cherish with your children and loved ones. Ready to get started? All you have to do is head to lifeafterbirthpsychology.podia.com, scroll down and click on my Why Am I So Angry workshop. You can also check out the link in the show notes for today's episode. All right, let's get back to the show. So my work now is in the realm of domestic labor, domestic equity. Mm. A lot of, you know, I would call it feminist work 
and about having equality, you know, equality out in the world. Everybody, most people are like, yeah, you know, gender doesn't matter. Everybody can do whatever they want out in the world, but it's not showing up the same way at home and in caregiving. Yeah. And so that is something I focus on a lot. And in my own personal life, things have changed very much in the way that my own household is divided. I would very easily say it's very equal. I am an equal partner. What I'm discovering through Mm -hmm. this journey is that even before that was an issue and caregiving and mothering, there was so much that I was overcompensating for and so much approval and validation I was seeking in ways before I became a mom. And I'm realizing as I'm digging back into my past, I think about the music I used to listen to, used to be influenced by who I wanted to think liked me, Mm. the clothes I picked, the situations I put myself into. Like I said, I was a drug addict. I did a lot of trying to find power in ways that were unhealthy. So really trying to figure out who I was before, it's hard because before I was a mother, I was supporting my husband's career. He's an entrepreneur. So I would do things like throw business parties for him, like be the trophy wife. And I would try to make connections that would help him in that way. Before that, I was a girlfriend to somebody. I was always trying to situate myself next to somebody else. Mm. Sounds like there was a lot of giving. There was a lot of giving of of you. And maybe I think it's interesting because I'm hearing so much of my own story, even in what you're (laughs) saying there. And I actually think it's not just me. It's just like women, right? It's like, it's what we do as women. We kind of... um, I remember talking to a girlfriend after she had a a breakup with her boyfriend many years ago and she was talking about being like a chameleon, you know, like and and just trying to mould herself into whatever someone needed of her in whatever space of life she was in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really something that we're conditioned to do as women. And so, you know, this is an interesting question when I ask this because some people have got a really clear idea of who they were back then. But lots of people, when I ask them this question, it's kind of like, I didn't really know who I was or where I was going or what I was doing. Like I was just trying to fit in. I was just trying to, you know, make myself feel like I belonged in whatever space that I was in. And that's kind of what I'm hearing in what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so interesting is I think genuinely we're all in there somewhere. And so it's trying to find which parts were genuine. And it's so interesting. So when I was using drugs, I only used drugs for a small window of time and then ended up getting the help that I needed. Drinking was a whole other thing. Like I'm an addict. I'm an addict addict. I drank for years and years and have since gotten sober. But I would drink and I would do drugs alone and do puzzles (laughs) I would do puzzles for hours and I would paint. And it's so interesting because like thinking back and reflecting on that, I was clearly trying to escape from something. I was trying to, you know, by the isolation and the drug use. Mm. But that was also like, I still go back to that feeling sans drugs, sans alcohol, but I want to do tiny projects by myself. I want to lose myself in intricate things. I want to go in a deep dive of learning about something very intensely. And that part of me 
is a genuine, that's like a core piece of me. So it's been fun to look back at who I was and how I coped in an unhealthy way and which pieces I can continue to embrace and bring forward. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I really relate to where you were saying about getting really into something and just getting really deep. And like, I could lose myself in that for hours. And that's certainly something that in this phase of mothering for me, because my kids are young and yours are still also, that's a really challenging thing for me because trying to find the opportunities to do that is really difficult. And so I'm constantly in this battle of like feeling frustrated or sometimes even resentful. And then if I'm able to, I can sort of pull myself up and go like, just surrender, just surrender, just surrender. Like I keep telling myself that, like, you know, this is only a moment in time, you know, and what I say to so many of my clients is like, yeah, there's parts of us that we have to kind of put on hold or sort of on the shelf at different points in this journey. And it doesn't mean that they're gone. It just means that they're just waiting. They're waiting for us to have that capacity to be able to return to them. So I really find that with that need or that desire that I have to just get so deep into something. Do you find that as well? Yeah, I completely resonate with what you're saying. One of the worst things as a parent, one of the biggest challenges that I face is interruption. Mm. And so, like you said, if I have finally, oftentimes I don't hit my flow state with whatever I'm working on until it's like an hour before I have to get my kids. And then having to be interrupted or having a great thought and then having somebody need me right in the middle of it. And then there's this layer of like, I could take a day and go on a trip or, you know, my husband's always supportive, like go do a thing, go lock yourself in your room. No one will bother you. Mm. Then I either feel so guilty that I am going to go and do that or I will go and then the magic won't happen. And then I'm like, oh, I wasted 12 hours alone and I didn't have that spark. Yeah, I know what you mean. Like, it's kind of like, it just happens when it happens. Yeah. And I so agree with you. Like, I talk to my husband about this a lot, about the deep, the deep works space. Like, it takes me a while to get to that point. And like, my four-year-old is in kindy now at school, but she goes to a kindy that's four days a week and it goes from nine till 12.45. And it is basically... (laughs) Like, it's a nightmare. Like, thankfully, I've got care around that for two days so that I can have two solid days because basically by the time I have to leave the house to pick her up, I've just, like you said, I've just gotten to a point where I know exactly what I'm doing. I know what to do. And it's like, if I just powered for another hour, I could get so much done. And then I'm like, oh, well, have to leave that (laughs) the next time. So it's interesting. It's this constant experience for me of like finding some way to be okay with letting go of that, like in terms of being like, I just need to surrender. And actually, because my daughter is four and she's likely to be the last child, because she's four and I know she's about to be in school, I have found this year that it's been easier because I actually have grief about her, you know, getting older. And so because I have that grief, it's easier for me to say, yeah, this is just a moment in time. Like next year, you won't be able to see her every day at lunch, you know? So that's really nice. So I want to ask you, How did you go into being a mother? So like in terms of did you have a decision that you'd made about like this is the time now? And also how did you go into it in terms of what were your expectations around becoming a mother? Big questions. Mm. Um, I got pregnant intentionally and we actually, I've been pregnant four times, Mm -hmm. two children, 
And so we, we got pregnant and then lost that pregnancy and then immediately got pregnant again right after that. And so the bounce back was a little bit, it's so interesting at the time I like glossed over the feelings involved with that. And looking back, it caused a lot of anxiety for subsequent pregnancies. Of course. Yeah. But we went into that very intentionally and I expected, I was one of the first in my social group to have children. I think I was trying to do the math recently. I was like 28, Mm. 27 or 28, which at least around here is very young. Yeah. I think it's also the age of having your first child for women is getting older as well. You know, I think in my mother's group from when I had my first baby, I was 32. And I think I was one of the youngest people in that particular group, which is maybe getting a little bit older than maybe the normal group. But I just remember being like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. There were people in their 40s in that group. Yeah. Yeah. That's how most of my friends now, as I'm 34, are having their first children now. Yeah. So I, I mean, I was on Instagram, I saw a lot of this like sweetness and it was just like very, this aesthetic of how cool and fun and hip it was to have like a baby who matched you. Yeah. I knew that it was going to be expensive. I knew that it was going to be hard, but our oldest, we didn't find out until she was two. She had medical complications and we didn't know what it was. So we didn't find out what was going on until she was two, but she was clingy. She couldn't take a bottle. Her speech was delayed. She wouldn't sleep. Mm. And so basically she was glued to me nonstop and cried all the time and wasn't gaining weight. And so there was a lot of layers of guilt that I didn't expect and confusion and self-doubt pretty much all of the time. I don't know how I I talked myself into having another child within that window, but I did. Yeah. But we found out when she was two that she had an undiagnosed, she had a cleft palate. Oh, wow. Which is a wild thing to miss. Mm. It's like a very easily diagnosed thing. Yeah. So it's since been corrected. She has caught up in a lot of ways. God, I can't imagine how challenging that two-year period must have been because like, yeah, like so intense. I didn't have that same journey, but I had lots of breastfeeding difficulties for the first like four to five months. And even even just generally being a first-time mum, thinking that whenever there was an issue, it was because I had done something wrong, you know, and that was not necessarily having, you know, medical issues or the same sorts of things that you're having. So I'm just wondering about that. And I'm thinking like, yeah, the guilt that you're talking about and how much for me, you know, after having my first baby, there was this real, there were moments where I really felt like a failure as a mother. Oh, yeah. And I don't know, does that feel relevant to you as well? Yeah. And I think being a parent, you know, you mentioned the parenting groups. There are a lot of benefits to those groups because at least I know for me, I found validation, reflection, community there. But also, I found a lot of advice that was like, just do this. Yeah. Just do this. And like you said, a lot of the issues I had with my daughter was feeding and, you know, breastfeeding. There's so much strong messaging about it and it's so moralized and 
if you can't feed your baby the right way, like you're automatically carrying all sorts of, I'm a bad mom. I'm not providing for my child. I can't, it's a mess. Yeah. And so you read through the comment sections or you hear people respond to you and like, it's your elders or it's your peers. I don't know how you couldn't feel guilty or not guilty, inadequate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I found that when I had my second, she was so different. She didn't have any of those issues with feeding. She was like a vacuum cleaner. She was amazing. (laughs) She would, I remember she would feed, you know, my son would take like 40 minutes on each breast to feed. And it was like, he just didn't even eat. Right. And then she would just be this vacuum that did both sides in like six minutes flat and was done. I was just like, what even is this? And I found that having her, I mean, obviously by the time you have another baby, you're sort of, you're a different person. You've got some experience under your belt and there are certain things that you may find easier the second time around or the subsequent times after, right? Because you've had the experience. But I felt that having the second baby for me was healing in a way that I didn't expect, which was that I sort of felt like I got to think or feel like, oh, it's not me. It's like, I'm, I'm just doing what I'm doing. Like I'm just parenting and trying my best. And these are just different kids. And yes, you know, like it's not, it's not actually about me. They're just different children and they have a different journey. And I just have to try and help navigate that with them as best I can. Did you feel that too? Oh yeah. Yeah. My children are completely different and it is, I mean, it's how I treated them. It's where I was in my part of life, but also absolute. They are completely different people. They're going to react differently to me. They had different personalities from the get-go. And I totally agree. It's like, it's not my fault. This is just who this child is. I don't envy the people who had a trick baby. My first was very challenging in a lot of ways. Now, here's the thing. My second is also incredibly challenging in a whole new set of ways. Mm -hmm. But I knew what I signed up for. I knew that I was going to face a challenge. (laughs) Yes, I know what you're talking about there. It makes me think of this beautiful friend from our mother's group who we're all still so connected. It's beautiful. And she had like a really easy baby that slept and fed easily and just was such a lovely little boy. Like he's gorgeous and he still is. And then she had girls after that who were just big, loud kind of personalities. And I just remember her being like, oh, my God, like what is this, you know? (laughs) And I remember thinking that as well because I had so much challenge with the first one. It was like I knew I could manage anything after that because it was like, you know, my baby didn't sleep. He didn't sleep through the night until he was like two years old or two and a half years old. Basically right before my next one was born, he started to sleep through the night. (laughs) So I remember, you know, like even going into labour, with my second, just being like, I'm actually just too tired to give birth. Can I just have a nap? (laughs) And the midwife's like, it doesn't really work like that. And I'm like, I'm just too tired, (laughs) you know? So, um, yeah, so I feel like it was easier for me in that sense. Like I was like, okay, I can handle, you know, whatever sort of comes. So I'd love to circle back to that question and ask you around what some of your expectations were, because obviously like there were challenges there with your first in particular and with, you know, kind of this diagnosis that came around too. Who did you think you'd be as a mother? I'd love to know a bit about that and what you've learned so far. I'm sure you get this all of the time, but the pandemic completely changed who I thought I was going to be as a parent a hundred percent. Yeah. 
And I know you had children around the same time as me. So here's what I expected. I expected going to the park all of the time. I expected play dates and birthday parties and classes, music classes, going to the library, being outside, meeting neighborhood kids, traveling to see my family who live all over the United States. I expected so much more activity and I wanted to be patient and fun and have all these crafts. And I was that for a couple of years. And then I have the three-year-old and I have a nine-month-old and then lockdown happens. And I worked a full-time job and I had the two kids and my husband worked. His job didn't stop and it was outside of the house. So I did all of that. I held it all together. And that's when the screens, like screens all day, they food just to survive. We really changed where our level of tolerance was. I had to have a capacity in certain places in my life. Yeah. And I'm now, I'm not going to call it post-COVID. This is COVID life. This is our life now. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out for me what feels safe, what feels like a reasonable risk level and what I can draw in and where I can readjust my expectations so that we are doing the things. I want connection, I want community, I want exploration. So how do I find that? How do I get imaginative now knowing like, I don't know if I'll bounce back from that level of burnout. Yeah, it's full <laughs> on, isn't it? It's so full on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Whole body just sizzled out. Yeah. And it's hard, isn't it? Because I think also, you know, what we may need sometimes is actually to be able to get downtime. But when you have kids, there isn't that opportunity to actually do that, right? Like to be able to just sit in sort of, it's not even necessarily stillness. There might be some of that there, but to to really let our nervous systems unwind and so that must be so, so difficult. And I think one of the things I really noticed, because for us here in Perth, we were actually very sheltered from the same sorts of experiences that happened all over the world, like over in Melbourne on the other side, you know, they were in lockdown for like seven months or something, like really strict lockdown, right? Wow. And we just didn't experience that. We had like a couple of periods where it was maybe two weeks or something and then everybody was kind of out and about. And because WA is very isolated, they closed the borders so no one could come in and no one could go out. So that's what happened to us for sort of two years. And it meant that there weren't the numbers that existed in other parts of the world. And so we really managed to sort of live sort of a normal life, like it wasn't normal as well. And one of the things I remember is, when the really big waves of COVID first happened and then finished, I didn't even know what to do to be connected anymore. Like I remember thinking like, what did I used to do before when we didn't have to worry about people sneezing around us and coughing around us? Like how did we, you know, and I still don't feel like I've recovered from that. Like I still don't feel like I have the same level of connection to people. And also in that period of time, my kids got older and went to school. And so I feel like I missed yeah. out on that last part of that time where you would just spend, you know, hours in the playgrounds with your girlfriends who had kids the same age and stuff. And I still have to remind myself like, oh, call this person, call that person, like check in on them. Like we used to talk all the time. And because we kind of lost that period of time, it's almost like a relearning. And for our kids, it's like 
a really conscious thing of of actually trying to provide those opportunities because otherwise they're just not going to learn that. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, it really is a readjustment. It's it's learning something new and how to relate. Exactly like you said, the, my brain has shifted. There's this innocence lost where prior to the pandemic beginning, I would go up to a stranger and meet a stranger and spend the evening talking at a bar to somebody or learning all about them. And I don't feel that level of comfort because I understand there is a whole other level of risk constantly present in my mind. Now, it doesn't matter how far we get the numbers, whatever embedded in my body at this point is this knowledge of risk and this othering, this distance. Yeah. And that's going to be a traumatic thing that we all went through. Yeah. I was just thinking it's a trauma, right? It is. And that's what we're we're responding with that cautiousness and that hypervigilance that happens to people when they've experienced trauma and they don't want to have to go through that again. Yeah. And it's it's absolutely present. We do go to the playground now and we haven't in the past couple of years. We go to the playground and you have, you know, my husband and I will sit there and there is physical tension present because we want to be careful if there's a child there who has a really snotty nose and it's not just maybe it's COVID. It's also what if they're sick and then they have for us, our childcare was so disrupted and that was so scary and traumatic. And we never knew how we were going to, when am I ever going to have a minute to myself again? When am I ever going to have normalcy? So when my kids get sick or I get the call that there's a fever, I am like full sweat. I'm like, yeah, oh, my whole world is over. Again, it's a trauma. Yeah, I feel that so deeply. The trauma response. Yeah, I feel that so deeply. I mean, we had the same. It was with the school. But yeah, also with my little one at that time, she was in like a family daycare at someone's home and it was the same, you know, and oh, it was so full on. And because she was in the family daycare, it was like if there was illness in that family, then it was just it was just over. Like it wasn't even like a daycare center where there were other carers. It was like, okay, there just isn't any care. And yeah, I mean, my husband was home during that period of time, but he was home and still supposedly making up all the same hours, <laughs> you know, than he right. did before. So there was definitely like benefit because I think just his presence in the home meant that I didn't feel like I was carrying like in my body and in my nervous system, I didn't feel like I was carrying everything on my own. And I knew that, you know, throughout the day, there was incidental opportunities for him to kind of be supportive and be engaged, but it still meant that there was this other stress. I remember having a stress about keeping the children out of his way, you know, like, oh, so, yeah. you know, like, so they wouldn't interrupt him because he'd be in these meetings and stuff. And that felt really stressful for me because now it was like this, I became this like gatekeeper, you know, around his workspace. And I found that really, really hard. Yeah. It's, it's such a full on time. And how do you feel? So when I asked you about, you know, what your expectations were, did you have any expectations around how you would actually be a mother? Like, I remember thinking before I had my kids, like I come from a background that there is a lot of trauma in my family. And I remember thinking like, I'm just not going to do all of that stuff. And I'm going to be you know, a really patient person and loving, and I am a very loving mother, but I just am not a patient person. <laughs> I really thought, I thought that I'd be, I just had this kind of romanticized idea about who I would be as a human being in the role of, mm-hmm. of being a mother. And I really 
underestimated the intensity of need from all the way through, like all the different ages. And so that's that was my thing. My thing was just that. That was what I expected and it just wasn't that. And I think I also expected that I would just love being with my kids all the time. And I think that lasted for, I don't know, like seven months the first time and one month the second time. <laughs> you know, like, and so that was like, you know, coming to terms with that and understanding that actually that that's okay in terms of not mm-hmm. being that all the time. And then, okay, well, what does that mean then? What does that mean about what motherhood looks like for me and how this looks for my family? I don't know. Do you have anything to share in that sense? Yeah. I mean, I totally relate to the patience thing. I mean, I love following all this gentle parenting stuff. And I thought I would be more consistent. Mm. I thought that I would stick to one thing and then follow through. I thought that I would be more tolerant and patient. I don't come from a background of yelling. And I I hate to admit it, but I definitely yell. Mm. I mean, I am really, there are things that I have been surprised that I've been able to be consistent at, which is I apologize. I'm good at apologizing. That's a biggie too. (laughs) That's a really big thing, like that repair, yeah. But it, yeah, I would say it's just so much harder to know in the moment what to do. And I think that that's really dysregulating to, I mean, you have a four-year-old, the negotiating that they try to do. Yeah, And the decision-making that I have to make is so exhausting where it's like, okay, she's asked me now six times for the one thing and I've told her six times, no, now she's going to start escalating. How much energy do I have in my pocket right now? Yes. Am I okay with breaking my boundary and then I'm going to pay for it tomorrow? It's just this constant, like, where am I going to sacrifice from? Yeah. And sometimes at the end of the night, I have no room for that. Oh, man. So, yeah, I totally feel that. And like for (laughs) us, we're going through this phase at the moment where like the bedtime is like I feel like I have anxiety from about 4.30 in the afternoon because I already know. Oh, yes. I know it's coming and it's like my two just turn into like there's only two of them so they're not the three musketeers but it's like the two musketeers and they're just like in this tag team of ridiculousness for hours when it's time (laughs) to get ready for bed. And I'm just like trying to stay calm and I'm like doing my breathing and all the rest of it. And often I just end up just losing it. So I actually bought, because I saw this thing from another counsellor actually from Australia where she has like the Google Home Uh and she has created what is called a family bell in there and it has steps. So now I've set up two, which is one in the morning that says, hey, Otis and Nakia, it's time for your secret agent task this morning let's go through the steps. And so it's like, get dressed. It has each step and they get to push the button or say, tell Google that they've finished it. And it's like such a novelty that they're loving it. And so I'm not like running around like a lunatic, you know, come on, let's get your toothbrush. Let's get your toothbrush. Let's get your toothbrush. Like put your socks on, put your socks on. You know, like it's just taken away the need for me to do that. So at the moment it's working. All right. (laughs) Hopefully, fingers crossed, it works. And their sort of thing is like, if you get it all done early enough in the morning, then you get like 15 minutes of reading eggs, which is kind of like an educational thing that they have, or you can watch TV for 15 minutes and it's working so far. 
because I was just, I got to this point where I was just Googling and I was talking in a forum. I've got a like psychology parents forum. And I was like, I'm going insane. Yeah. Like, I'm going, I don't know what to do anymore. Like, you know, like, how can I solve this? And so it was really great, actually. And that's what I got to. And I was like, okay, this is going to be the solution for now. And hopefully, you know, that works. I don't know. Like, I just think to myself, like, my kids are just really intense. I don't know how other people do this. Or is everybody losing <laughs> their mind at bedtime? Like, I, I don't know. Oh, no. Everyone, yeah, everyone is in the same boat. That is one thing that I, have been very comforted on being a person on the internet who hangs out in these like motherhood circles. At least I know I'm not alone. Yeah. Because it can feel very isolating. And if you hang out too long on the like mommy influencer pages where it's like idealized, you might get the idea that you're alone, but you're not. It's hard for all of us. Yeah, totally. (laughs) We're all like losing our mind. And like every morning when we get in the car to go to school, like not every morning, but a lot of mornings, I'm just thinking, can the neighbors hear me? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, get this. my next door neighbor, my next door neighbor just had a baby. They're like four months old and I can hear it crying. I can hear the baby crying. And every time I hear that baby cry, I go, oh no, they can hear me. They can hear my yeah. four-year-old cries so loud. And then when I get I don't do that often, but when I yell, oh, they 100% hear it. Yeah. Oh, well, they'll probably get it now. <laughs> uh-huh. get oh, it. yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's all good. Give them a year or two. They've yeah, got it. they'll get it. <laughs> so I'd love to know, I was going to ask you, what's been your biggest challenge? And maybe, I mean, you've talked about the pandemic and obviously that was huge for you. And I think for most people, most people on the planet who were parents at that time, that would have been hard. Is that what you would call your biggest challenge or is there something else that really stands out that's been kind of the work for you in this journey so far? I would say the challenges have changed over time. My current challenge right now is that I have a partner who has really, really embraced being a not, he's always been a very active caregiver, but he's embraced being a a decision maker. Mm. And I think that that was something he felt held from, you know, patriarchal ideas about as a man, what he should be as a caregiver. And now it's getting out of my own way and relinquishing control and not feeling like the way that the house is kept or the way the kids behave is a reflection of me solely. And so you know, I've had a rough, busy week with a big project that has been stressing me out and giving myself permission to just not be the engaged parent this week. Mm. I'm here. I can help you get the shoes. I'm going to eat dinner with you. But I am not the one who is, I am not the one negotiating at bedtime. My husband was the one who, who did all that tonight. Yeah. So it's like giving myself permission to confront those really core beliefs about what it means to be a mother and as an adult woman and questioning them. Yeah. Yeah. When you started answering that, I was like, have you got a mic in my house? Because we literally went to bed last (laughs) night and had this conversation where I've been away for eight days. And when I got back, there were a few things that were different in the house. And one of them was that my husband moved where the dog's bed was. 
And then I vacuumed because there was lots of fur around and I just didn't like it. So I vacuumed that little spot where the fur was. And then I moved the dog bed back. And he was just like so offended because he was like, I thought really hard about that and made the decision that that is the better place for it to be. And then we had this conversation and he was just like, yeah, like if you want me to be more involved, you have to like just let me actually have some control and trust that it's okay if it's not exactly how you would like to do it. And it was so, yeah, when you first started off with that, I was just like, oh, my God, we've literally just had the same conversation. So I really relate to that in terms of accepting that it doesn't have to be my particular way, right? It gets to be any kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's a really big thing as well to take your hand off of that because I think that one of those kind of ideologies that is perpetuated in our culture is very much about, you know, a good mother is a mother who's involved in all parts of what's happening in her home, right? Mm -hmm. All parts of what happens with her children. And actually, then when we start to feel guilt about that we aren't, you know, being involved, because I have that feeling too when I have like meetings on in the evenings and stuff and I can hear the kids and I can hear them arguing about something or whatever and I just keep like I just want to go out there and solve it and I'm like, no, and then I feel guilty and then I'm like, why do I feel that guilt? And, yeah, doing that that process of really questioning and and trying to understand and always it comes back to like, oh, this is an ideology. This is coming from this ideology yeah. that I ought to be this, this and the other. It's big work to do that. And I feel like it'll be forever. Yeah. 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 One of my, it's so funny. I was just reading through some old document. Coincidentally, I don't talk about rehab often. I like, I never, ever talk about that. But I was looking up the facility last night. For some reason, it closed down totally randomly. And part of the philosophy and something that really has helped me throughout life is just a therapeutic, was it DBT? Mm. Yep, DBT's one. Stress tolerance. Mm. Distress tolerance, yeah. That was like a principle of the type of therapy that I got when I was a teenager and continues to be a massive part of the therapy that I do with myself. Yeah. Being able to tolerate the distress of possibly disappointing other people, of the judgment of others, of behaving in a way setting boundaries, even though that goes against everything that I know about what makes a good mother. Yeah. That being able to sit with that distress and be like, oh, this sucks, but it's okay. It's okay if this sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think naming it is such a good thing, like having the language to be able to say or the understanding and insight to know that there are, you know, these ideologies that come from our culture that, yes, we may hold and that can be subconscious, but making those things conscious means that we have the language to say, ah, okay, I know where this is coming from. And even though I know where it's coming from, I still feel the guilt because, you know, this has been within me for such a long time, but it makes it easier to be able to sit with that distress or, you know, that discomfort because we know where it's coming from, we can name it. And I feel like it feels really empowering. There's been a few moments in the last couple of months where I've inquired internally about the guilt that I'm feeling and it's come from like, oh, and it's almost like I'm like in awe. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Like that is so deeply entrenched. I thought I'd dealt with that and I have not dealt with that. <laughs> you know, like really. Uh-huh. You know, and I have this experience of like, wow, that's just really amazing how good we are at being able to have these ideologies deep within us and it's this layered kind of experience of we think we've dealt with it in one way or we have an understanding of it and we think that that means we've dealt with it. Having an understanding and actually really releasing all of that is two different things. 
But certainly understanding it is definitely one of the key first parts of that. Absolutely. And I'd love to know what has been your biggest area of growth? Like when you think about who you were before being a mother or even in that sort of stage where you were pregnant and where you're at right now, like what do you see as the growth that you've had? I think that the biggest change has been, I mean, like I said, I continue to work on this ability to sit with discomfort, but also just the question mark. The question mark just constantly exists now in my brain where, like you said, you talk to a lot of people who I did all the things I was supposed to do. I I didn't quite know who I was because I was just doing what I was supposed to do my own way along the way. And now as I move through, I'm trying to be slower, more intentional. And as I take a step, like you said, like, huh, where did that come from? Yeah. Why did I react that way? I can be aware. And it doesn't mean I solved it, but at least I've added the question almost always through everything. It slows me down a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like it's it's that pause, isn't it? Between maybe what your next course of action might be and just like being able to have that pause. It's almost like there's a few things. It sounds like there's a real intention in the way that you're going yes. through life, right? Rather than on this autopilot of not knowing the processes that are happening in the background that are leading you to behave in certain ways and just like being so much more aware of like, oh, okay, this is why I have a a desire to do this next thing or why I'm feeling this particular feeling. So like having that pause where you can really like hold it out and look at it and go, oh, okay, I get what this is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's definitely something that I'm, you know, when I think about my own experience being a child, I definitely didn't have that. There was no pause. There was just reaction from, you know, the caregivers that I had around me. And it's Mm -hmm. definitely something that I want to instill in my children so that they can have a real intentionality around how they show up in the world and checking in with what I'm about to do next. Does that fit with who I want to be in the world? You know? Exactly. So I feel like that's, yeah, definitely something that I want to work on too. And I really want to know about, obviously, the work that you do is so relatable, obviously, and all of us are going through this. And I think something that you mentioned at the beginning was that you recognize that the way you were showing up in the world before having children was, I wonder if you think of it like this, like I think about it as like I was sort of signing this unconscious contract about how I would continue to show up in a relationship and that was very much one where like I did all the caregiving, right, and it was driven by that desire to belong and to want to be needed in some way or whatever it was, right. And I wonder how has your mothering experience influenced the work that you do? So like you said that your partner has come a long way in how he kind of shows up for you and for the family. How has that ended up? feeding into the work that you do now? How did that lead you here? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing the work as I speak to it. So I'm not coming and saying, oh, I have all of these answers. I have it all figured out. Follow my steps. I am saying, here are the things I am doing. Here are the things I'm learning as I go. And I do, I work with couples and I I do a lot of actual hands-on work with other people as well. So I've learned from a lot of my peers But I 
had bought in so hard to the contract. I had signed the contract. I am going to give and sacrifice and accommodate and be flexible, all these things. And I can only control or I can try to control myself. I'm responsible for how I react to things. And my boundary setting has made a massive impact on our relationship. Yeah. And I think I went from wanting to protect my relationship at all costs, no matter what, to wanting to protect real genuine connection and joy. Yeah. That has become more important to me than some institute, some rule following. And so it has been very challenging over the last several years to shift and to really adjust and be intentional. Like, what parts of this relationship do we like? Which ones have we just been tolerating? We don't want to be in a relationship that's tolerance. Yes, yes. So there's been growing pains and it's been very turbulent in the most wonderful way because we have both given ourselves permission and we show our kids this every day to embrace what care is, to show up genuinely. And it's just an ongoing process, but this is the work. Yeah. I'm currently doing the work. Yeah. An ongoing thing. And I think it is that ongoing thing because when you mentioned you don't want to be in a relationship that is centered on tolerance, it just made me think of you know, the relationships that our parents and their parents maybe had been in and how much those relationships at those times in history would have been around so much tolerance, right? And a lot of that is because, you know, the rights for women were different during those eras as well. And so there was a need, almost a survival need to tolerate some of the stuff that was happening back then. And of course, that means that's what we know as well. That's what we see. And also that that's also communicated through media and all of the rest of it as well. Oh, yeah. Even still now. So, yeah. And I'd love to ask you, what do you most want to impart on mothers who are listening today? I think it's that last thing that you deserve to have joy. That's the thing that's worth protecting. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's it. That is beautiful. Even the discomfort lends itself to the joy. Mm -hmm. It's okay to be a little uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. It's all part of our human experience, isn't it? That's really beautiful. It's okay. You deserve deserve to have joy. That is really beautiful. I'm going to take that with me as well. (laughs) Good. Put it in your packet. Yeah, I will. In my pocket. And I'd love to ask you some very quick rapid fire questions just to finish off. And the first one is, what are you listening to at this moment in your life? So that could be music or it could be podcasts. What's in your ears? I am currently right this moment listening to Momfluenced by Sarah Peterson. I've got that in Audible, but I haven't started it yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. So that's that's on the docket right now. Okay. Beautiful. Are you enjoying it? You're loving it. Very much. I've been taking it in nuggets. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And what is the last TV show you binged? And this is always interesting because it tells us about who you are (laughs) beneath everything else. (laughs) I don't know if it's available in Australia, Mm -hmm. but it's called Jury Duty. Oh, no. Amazon Prime. Okay. I have to check it out. Very briefly, it's a show where one guy doesn't know that he's on a show and everybody else is an actor Uh and they put him on a jury and he has to deliberate with his peers. It's a very silly, very wacky. Right. It was something I'd never seen before. 
My husband picked it. Okay. I'll have to check it out. This is my secret way of, you know, like getting a list of things that I can watch. (laughs) (laughs) And what is the most influential book that you've read? Um, Okay. Oh, man. I would say How We Show Up by Mia Birdsong. Okay. I haven't read it. I'll have to check that out. How We Show Up. Yeah. It came to me at the right moment. It was the right book at the right moment. Mm, Beautiful. Laura, thank you so much for being here with us. Before I let you go, where can listeners find out more about you? You can find me on Instagram or TikTok, and the handle is that darn chat. Yes. Or on my website, thatdarnchat.com. Beautiful. And I'll link all of that in the show notes for everyone who's listening today. Laura, thank you so much for your time. It's been so lovely chatting with you and hearing about your life and where you've come from and where you're going. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for joining me, Mama. If you enjoyed this episode, I would just love for you to leave me a review and follow or subscribe to be notified when the next episode drops. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me over at Instagram where my handle is at lifeafterbirthpsychology and you can find out more about how I can support you on your mothering journey at my website www.lifeafterbirth.com.au. See you back here soon for our next chat.